welcome to the LARV Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Kate Wolf, and I'm joined by my co-host, Eric Newman. Hi, Kate. Hi, Eric. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you, too. Haven't seen you since the New Year. And this week... Oh, that's right. Yeah. 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 It's been a while. And this week, we're (laughs) speaking with Curtis White about his book, Transcendent, Art and Dharma in a Time of Collapse. Yeah, I love this book because it it asks, at least in part, in, in one of its biggest essays, a central question that I've been thinking about for a long time as somebody who I would describe myself as a very lay practitioner of Buddhism, right? So I I meditate a lot and I followed like several different kind of Buddhist practices, extending from like Theravadan Buddhism to also Tibetan Buddhism uh, over the course of my life since I was a teen. And I have also been witness to the flourishing of a kind of secular Buddhism. So the mindfulness industry, right, that takes all of the techniques from Buddhist meditation practice uh, in particular and kind of tries to apply them to a very not necessarily Buddhist practice of making yourself a more efficient worker and subject for capitalism. (laughs) Um, So we talk about that on this interview, and I find that thoroughly fascinating and, and also a really interesting treatment of Buddhism as a radical and countercultural religion and philosophy. So lots to kind of break into here. And I really enjoyed this conversation. Yeah, well said, as did I, even though I, I don't have that background that you do, but anything that keeps the counterculture going, um, I support. <laughs> You've never, you're such, you're such a lifelong Angelino. You've never been wrapped up in the kind of mindfulness craze or meditation crazes. <laughs> cliche much eric <laughs> okay <laughs> fair enough all right judge I mean, not i've gone judge. i've gone to so i did go to a dharma talk with robert thurman where i was like oh mm-hmm. yeah this makes sense and i'm on board and i've been to a monastery in japan where okay. i sat and meditated and i have actually you know practice not in los angeles it was on a zoom with a lot of Mm. other people doing, you know, love and kindness meditation. So yeah, I'm on board, but I can't really claim much knowledge. But um, I really appreciated listening to Curtis talk about his experience and kind of rail against the secularization of something that really isn't secular and is uh, trying to put us in touch with with something beyond what we can see and what we know. And, And that's where I can sign on for religion. (laughs) <laughs> and that's Same. and again like that's i i do think that art and religion are really combined and that's also what curtis is writing about here absolutely so yeah all right well let's get to that conversation wonderful we're excited to be speaking with the writer curtis white today white's many books include the novels memories of my father watching tv Lacking Character, An American's Magic Mountain, as well as works of social commentary such as The Middle Mind, Why Americans Don't Think for Themselves, We Robots, Staying Human in the Age of Big Data, and Living in a World that Can't Be Fixed, Reimagining Counterculture Today. He's a former professor of English at Illinois State University and a founder of FC2, a publisher of innovative fiction that's run collectively by its authors. He joins us to speak about his latest book, Transcendent, Art and Dharma in a Time of Collapse. A series of essays, Transcendent offers an incisive critique of the westernization of Buddhism, from its adoption by tech companies like Amazon and Google into a practice of corporate mindfulness that aids with productivity in the workplace, to its embrace by new atheists such as Stephen Batchelor, who argue for Buddhism without beliefs, to its simplification as a matter solely of neuroscience. Instead, White emphasizes the more unruly, unmateristic aspects of the Dharma, defamiliarization, passion, and metaphysical consciousness, all of which he argues share a deep connection to the work of Western artists, musicians, and poets. Writing with a fiery skepticism about the inevitability of techno-capitalism as the only solution to solving the world's crises, White advocates for Buddhism's place as a form of resistance and a way to think against the status quo. Thanks so much for being here, Curtis. Happy to be here. So, Curtis, just before we get into all of these kind of really meaty questions that I'm fascinated by about the secularization of Buddhism, 
Can you just tell our listeners a little bit about how you came to Buddhism, kind of this religion, practice, philosophy, and how that experience shaped this book? Oddly enough, I, I came to Buddhism through Western philosophy. In the 70s, as a grad student in English, I was, of course, studying the French post-structuralist, one of whom was Jacques Derrida and his notion of deconstruction. Later, in the early 80s, I happened to be staying at my sister's house on Page Street, which is right across the street from the Zen Center. And so they would take me over there for Dharma talks, etc. And when I came home, I got curious about it, and I started reading some of their books, and I discovered this uh, notion of emptiness, which is uh, very like very like Derrida in some ways. In fact, a scholar back in the 80s wrote a book about Nagarjuna and Derrida, which was the Indian philosopher Nagarjuna, who was basically the philosopher most associated with the concept of emptiness. So at any rate, you know, it's kind of weird because I entered Buddhism at the deep end of the pool. Because for most people, the concept of emptiness is, is the most difficult part. From that point, it was a long process of reading over a period of decades, really, off again, on again, depending upon what else I had going on, basic Buddhist texts. I really liked a particular Western scholar in Frederick Strang in a book about emptiness, and I found it really fascinating. And in more recent years, like the last 10 or 15 years, I have actually developed, I've gone from being a what they call a study monk to being a practice monk. And I've actually developed, I joined a sangha, a couple of virtual sanghas as well. And I've started, you know, practicing meditating and looking at it that way. And in the last 10, 15 years, my interest in Buddhism has really deepened and become much more personal, much more important to me as a human being. And is this, I know that your beginning was in the Zen center. Is Zazen or kind of Zen still the practice, generally speaking, that you follow, or or is it different? No. Okay. And that kind of takes me into the question of, you know, what is American Buddhism? And um, I recently read a book by Joseph Goldstein called One Dharma, and he argues something that is very similar to my take on the situation, which is that the function of American Dharma or American Buddhism in particular, is to bring together the various lineages from the East, Zen, Vajrayana, Mahayana, and Theravadan Buddhisms. I think the healthiest thing, and in most ways this is the case, for American Buddhism is to do what Goldstein recommends, and have a thorough familiarity with those basic texts and ideas that Theravada forwards, read the sutras, etc., but also begin a meditation practice that involves following the breath. It doesn't necessarily mean following the breath in the way that it, to the degree that Zen recommends, but nonetheless, it's still there. So those two things in particular, I mean, I do think though that American Buddhism leaves room for the mystical, for the transcendent. Although that is that is much more difficult for us to, to wrap our minds around. Yeah, I want to maybe go back to emptiness I realize it's a hard thing to talk about, and I wonder if it has anything to do with this kind of, in your introduction, you write about Suzuki saying, you know, if you think you'll get something from practicing Zazen, then you've already involved in impure practice. So much of kind of the dogma of Buddhism is that you can't, you know, I think of like cutting through spiritual materialism, the Shana Rinpoche book. It's just that it actually is not a thing. You cannot know what will come from it, kind of in opposition to a lot of the Western idea of being good, of bettering oneself, and that exactly. why one would practice Buddhism is actually to become better. And that this question of, you know, there is nothing tangible to get. Is, or, seems like aligned with emptiness. Am I right? Or I don't know if that relates to emptiness, but I know what you're saying. It's sort of like uh, Americans tend to pursue sukha vedana, which means a happy feeling. They were really hoping that Buddhism is going to get them to a happy feeling. But uh, the thing to know about emptiness is some people say that it's just a function of the philosophy of Mahayana, the latest the most recent, relatively speaking, Buddhist school. 
But it's pretty clear to me that emptiness is present even in the earliest sutras in the concept of anatman, not self. So our sense of self is really a matter of bringing to us things that we've been born into. Essentially, we're born into a culture and we define ourselves, we know who we are by bringing things to us, most of which are in the immediate environment, which is part of why we have an awful political situation that we have in the United States right now, because people have defined themselves in radically different ways, very conflicting ways. So that notion that there's no essential self and that the only way to have a self is to, in Derrida's term, find supplements. So you have a kind of void and then you supplement those voids and create a self by latching onto whatever is around you. In many cases, what we latch onto is the notion of success and the idea that things are going to make us happy, consumer commodification, that sort of thing. So then in some ways, it's, it might be wrong to say, you know, I am a Buddhist, but it's already when you say I am. Exactly. That's already the problem. And that's such a radical concept, I think, in this more individualistic culture. Right. It is. But it's, you know, I mean, Buddhism is radical. It wants to change you. It is a thorough critic of what we call conventional reality. Actually, what I've been saying is that one of the reasons that the counterculture in the 60s latched on so quickly to Buddhism and other Eastern religions was because Buddhism in particular was already a counterculture. In other words, whenever it set itself up, it set itself up in opposition to, at least initially, whatever power structures there were in that place. Of course, the history is complicated. Robert Thurman argues that the only place that really succeeded in distancing itself from power was in Tibet. The other places ended up having to make all kinds of compromises so to you know, support power in order to have a place in that culture at all. So you know, the emperor says, I'll build you a nice monastery, but you have to say something nice about it. <laughs> This little, war, this little war in Ukraine we've got, you know? <laughs> Along those lines, one of the things that I find fascinating, and I think it's part of Buddhism's fundamental incompatibility with a capitalist society, right? Which is all about differentiation and non-dualism within Buddhism is opposed to differentiation, right? It's solidity and unity. One of the landmark essays in this collection is about the secularization of Buddhism in the United States, or specifically, we might say, the flourishing of a kind of corporatized or corporate-friendly Buddhism. And by that, I mean the sense that all of us have actually experienced in some ways, right? If you work in a university, if you work at a tech company, if you work even outside of those places, you've probably heard something about mindfulness, right? Or adapting corporations and people they adapt Buddhist principles and practices, but for productivity or stress reduction. So in this way, like Kate was saying, it's Buddhism has this transactional life right now in American culture where you do these things, you follow your breath, you do all of this kind of stuff so that you can be a better worker and a less stressed person. So can you just explain a little bit why you think that has happened and why that is the problematic tendency, like what we're missing there? Well, it's happened because, uh, in particular, capitalism doesn't like opposition. Capitalism doesn't like enemies. But it understands that it will have enemies, whether it wants them or not. But if it must have enemies, it will make them itself in its own image. <laughs> it will make its enemies its friends in some way. Yeah. yeah. I mean, really, that's about all you need to know about Marxist understanding of ideology is that Capitalism is constantly cranking out ideologies that blunt the force of anything that opposes it. And that may sound too big for what we're talking about here, but look what they did to the counterculture, how they commodified it, how they turned it into a perfectly good example of that. Yeah. And uh, you're probably thinking of my mention of Steve Jobs in the early chapter. Yeah. Because it was really, I mean, Jobs was amazing. He, he not only recognized these two enemies, but he knew how the counterculture on the one hand and Buddhism on the other. He was able to turn them into things that created a new brand. So he was able to brand himself with those two things. Well, in the process, 
completely betraying both of them, you know. It is starting with, you know, the fact that he called his company Apple. I mean, okay, the Beatles had, I think they had that word first, bad. <laughs> Shameless. But let me say one more thing about the mindfulness-based stress reduction. I was listening to a podcast on Tricycle by Kurt Spellmeyer. Actually, the podcast was, was a series of courses. It was actually about emptiness, but he compared mindfulness-based stress reduction as a way to detox at work to having a cigarette break. He said, yeah, you, you go out, you smoke your cigarette, you feel a little better, you go back inside, you're more alert, you can work better. But it doesn't, you know, that is not Buddhism. And I think that in some ways it would seem like, oh, this is a watering down of something radical, but is that really so problematic if it, if the corporate structure isn't going to change, like at least maybe it's better for people to be meditating than smoking cigarettes. I mean, it's up in the air, but it's probably healthier. There's no question. You're right that people are suffering. Every time they do a, a survey of job satisfaction, it looks like it's been taken in the country of misery. Okay. Well, but then I think it's interesting that you point out the way in which the Westernization of Buddhism then kind of goes back across to the East, that in Korea, now they are actually doing more kind of corporate Buddhist practices, just like they do in America. So it does have larger repercussions than just what happens here. Oh my God, it's like Buddhism is, when I read that article about these tea shops in Korea that are offering mindfulness practice to stressed out business people, I said, wait a minute, isn't Korea a Buddhist country traditionally? Yeah, yeah, it is. So Buddhism has come to the West, they've completely changed it, and then they sell it back to a, a now capitalist Korea, and the Koreans apparently look at it and, and say, this is brand new. What a good idea, meditation over tea. Maybe just talk a little bit about, I know it's a large topic, but some of what is lost when Buddhist becomes, as Stephen Batchelor said, without beliefs, Buddhism without beliefs, what does the kind of secularization effectively do or not do? Yeah. Well, for one thing, especially insofar as all of this, remember, is being based on science. I was listening to one of the Inside meditation people give a lecture the other day, I won't name names, but he said basically at the end of his talk, he said, Buddhism is not a religion, it is a science of the mind. And I said to myself, that's what it's come to, but they have no idea what the mind is. How can you have a science of something that, I mean, what's the first step in, in the scientific procedure, you know, the method? The first step is observation, but you can't observe the mind, at least if you mean something different than the brain. So what kind of science are you talking about? But the thing that I, I most object to in this uh, corporatization and scientification of Buddhism is that Buddhism loses its warmth. That's the first thing. And the second thing is that it loses the opportunity of a beyond. They're all opposed to any kind of beyond. It's all mechanistic materialism, just as it was with for Newton and the idea of a clockwork universe. So they're very forward about it. You know, they just say there is no beyond. There's just this material reality. When we understand what meditation is or what consciousness is, we'll understand it through fMRI and charts, you know, computerized diagrams of, of our neurons. But um, that's really to deny uh, Buddhism a rich part of its heritage because there is a metaphysical... I mean, Buddhism is very practical, as anybody who approaches it will know. I mean, it does help in its sort of day-to-day -day way. But at the same time, almost all traditions in Buddhism have a notion of a beyond, which they usually call Dharmakaya or Buddha nature. And that is the place at which Buddhism is a religion. Darn it. The idea is that we have a true nature. Each of us as individuals has the true nature and that it is related to Buddha nature. Where does this Buddha nature exist? Where does Dharmakaya exist? Don't know. But I personally feel as a practicing Buddhist that I have experienced it. I feel confident 
Buddhism doesn't say that we have faith in something. They say, I have unshakable confidence. I have unshakable contents in the meaningfulness of my own experience. And that very often involves a kind of beyond. I think that there's part of the disconnect, I think, is that Buddhism is one of those Eastern religions that from a Western perspective does something that at least on one level seems very radical, right? Which is to chop off the Godhead, that it is Buddha is everyone can realize their inner divine nature, that that is indistinguishable from the Buddha's nature. And that this kind of, especially this rhetoric you're teasing out, this, he was a scientist of the mind, you know, he observed what caused him problems and he worked out a prescription. And it's always in these kind of medicalized terms. You know, he worked out a cure for the condition of being alive. But I'm wondering if has this been just a misinterpretation? Because, for example, if you practice Tibetan practice, it is actually quite mystical. There's lots of rituals. Kind of. There's lots of beliefs. Yeah, exactly. Is Vajrayana, right? So it's very mystical. Not to mention Padmasambhava and the idea of, of sure. reincarnation. Right. Or the Buddha realms, for example, is like alternate spaces of existence that do approximate without being exactly quite like a Judeo-Christian idea of heaven. And I'm wondering if part of the disconnect here was that Buddhism was able to make a certain kind of inroad in the West that's unique for Eastern religions, primarily because it seemed to match so well with this empiricism, this non-judgmental quality that it didn't appear to have a bunch of, though again, if you just scratch the surface in Zen, for example, there are a lot of fancy rituals. There's a lot of stuff that you have to do that's quite complicated. But so can you just talk a little bit about that as maybe this fundamental disconnect? First, I would quibble with the idea that uh, it was science that made the West, Americans in particular, see Buddhism as something familiar. The trail is pretty darn clear going back to the 18th century and, oh, it's like Blake. The transcendentalists, yeah. The transcendentalists, but also the, mostly in the book, the romantic poets and the, the German romantic philosophers like Friedrich Schelling. And they were all working towards the same sort of idea. One of the things I say is that um, if the Dharma is something that is universal, a universal quality of Buddha, and that nature is working its way out much earlier in the East, why shouldn't we imagine that it was also trying to work its way out in the West in the form of philosophy and art? I mean, I do think it was. Now, I hurry to say that Buddhism is Buddhism. It doesn't depend on anything. The scientists say, oh no, it depends on science. I say, it doesn't depend on anything in the West. Buddhism is Buddhism. But that's not accepted. <laughs> so I would not want to say that Buddhism is in the West is dependent upon the arts. I would say that the arts are a gate, the Dharma gate, that allows us to experience Buddhism in a way that makes it feel like it's something that has been returned to us. Not, oh, what's this newfangled uh, thing over here? I mean, to a degree we say that, but on the other hand, when we look at it, we sort of see ourselves. If our orientation is toward the arts and philosophy. But of course, science has spent the last 200 years since Darwin destroying the idea that there's any sort of beyond, any possibility of uh, a Dharma reality in the West. The poets know it. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We've been speaking with Curtis White, author of Transcendent. We'll return to that conversation in just a moment, but first we have this week's book recommendation. We're thrilled to have Anand Girdardas back with us on the line today. Anand is the author most recently of The Persuaders at the front lines of the fight for hearts, minds, and democracy. And he's joining us today for this week's book recommendation. So Anand, which book are you recommending? I recently reread a book by probably the person who most taught me how to write the particular genre of nonfiction I do. It was V.S. Naipaul. I've read so much of his nonfiction about India, where my family comes from, and 
so I've been rereading this uh, book, India, A Million Mutinies Now, which mm. is the third book in his kind of India trilogy that was written over decades. Um, the most hopeful of the three uh, coming as the last, you know, the, the last book I think re- reported in the 90s, if I'm not mistaken, when it felt like a more hopeful time in India. Um, <laughs> but Naipaul in general is someone, I mean, he was a very complicated man and someone who is someone I didn't, learn from uh on his views of things but i learned <laughs> sure <laughs> learned craft from him how to how to go to places go to settings and try to have kind of conversations with people that are both specific to them and specific to their stories but rise to become about broader things and you know he kind of called them his travel books but i i've been thinking about but that work, I took my family to India over the holidays. Mm. And like my son has been there, who's almost eight. He's been there once when he was two. My daughter had never been there because of the pandemic. And it was a kind of reconnection with roots. And I was I was rereading this work that that kind of in many ways set me on a path or taught me how to how to do the work I ended up doing. So and I, I'm often struck by how how few people in the United States know or have read Naipaul. I mean, I often tell people like, I just, he's so important to me in the kind of formation of my craft that I just like say it offhandedly and people are like, sorry, who? And that always, that always feels a little surprising. So. um, Have you, since you've read him throughout your life, I mean, was there something that struck you differently about reading at this time? Or is there a way in which Naipaul speaks to you differently now, maybe than he did when you were first reading his works as a younger person? I think what's really, what really opened up so much potential for me was, I think what felt radical about him at the moment he did was the often harsh way he wrote about societies like India in the post-colonial era Mm. uh, and was able to, I mean, and he was just like famously harsh in general, like he came to my house for dinner once when he was, I was a grad student. I like invited him on a lark during his book tour. He was a harsh dinner guest and didn't seem to like anybody except Henry Louis Gates, who was also at the table. Loved him. Um, <laughs> Sounds like a great dinner party. It was, a, it was a great dinner party. But in the books, in the work, I think what is, I asked him about it. I did an interview with him after the day after that and, you know, for the Atlantic. And I asked him about it and, and asked him essentially about, like his books are profoundly empathetic about the people he writes about, but he's also full of very harsh judgment. And I think if you meet him in person, you just see the judgment and probably not the empathy, but in the books, it's very Mm. clear. This is a person who's really doing like both of these things at a quite strong level and interchangeably, sometimes at the same time, sometimes alternating, but he's able to see into the essential nature of what people are telling him the essential truths about certain places, not always getting his judgments right, but but able to see quite deep. I mean, India is the place I know best of the you know uh, places he wrote about outside the United States. This is like a really penetrating view of some very deep things that are happening on a level in India that you know very few other people have been able to mine so well. And at the same time, it's like this like harsh, cranky guy. And he said to me, "I think I hold." people to the same standards I'd hold myself to. And that like, we are all harsh on ourselves and to actually show empathy and care for people is to like, look at them as unsparingly as they would look at themselves or you would look at yourself. And that was a, it took me a little bit aback and I traveling in India the last few weeks and, and reading this book, there was a, I don't know, a kind of post-colonial glow. And when he first showed up there in the 60s and uh, obviously a sense that the British were responsible for a lot of what was not working in that society. But he had the, I think, courage in that moment to say, that's not the only reason things are not working well here. There are very profound tendencies in this culture that are really, really problematic and are quite core to what this culture is doing, what it's doing to women, what it's doing to people from lower castes, et cetera. And I think that analysis really has held up and it's sadly held up. You know, when I travel in India today, I mean, I was a foreign correspondent in India for the New York Times in the 2000s. I was struck by how true some of those observations from the 60s and 70s books Mm -hmm. were were then. And I'm struck by how true they are now. He has a whole chapter about an anonymous 
person he's quoting critiquing the cleanliness of Indian bathrooms and asking the question, why is it so hard to have clean bathrooms in India? And he doesn't reveal who this person is making this critique. He first just cites the critique. And this person who he's citing goes through an analysis of actually why it is a hard problem, which is that in India, cleaning a bathroom is viewed as a role of a certain kind of person. Mm. And as so long as that remains the deep inner scaffolding of people's brains, it will never be a shared responsibility, right? You can hire people for it. You can pay. It doesn't matter. It's sure. the basic architecture of people's brain is cleaning a toilet is belongs is a responsibility that some people have to do and no one else has to think about. You will always have dirty toilets. He reveals at the end of this chapter that the person he's been quoting is Gandhi. <laughs> oh, that is right? quite a reveal. And it's this harsh, harsh, <laughs> yeah. harsh self-analysis of the country. And it's Gandhi. And obviously Naipaul agrees with it. And I will say in 2022, this is still a problem and it's no longer a money issue. There's a lot of money in India right now. Yeah. There's You go to airports where they're beautiful, but the bathrooms are, right? And it's just like, this guy picked up on some very, very deep parts of this culture that it's kind of in a way remarkable that this method could pick up just of interviewing people, having one person after another. He's not quoting studies. He's not doing, you know, lit reviews, but he was able to get to certain truths about, about places that felt, that felt very powerful. That sounds great. And while this could very well just be an omnibus recommendation for all of the work of V.S. Naipaul, can you give us the title of this particular book one more time? Yeah, the one I've been rereading is India, A Million Mutinies Now. Thank you so much. That was Anand Girdardas, author most recently of The Persuaders at the front lines of the fight for hearts, minds, and democracy. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Curtis White, author of Transcendent. Yeah, I mean, I think you make a really good case in your opening when you're talking about, you know, Paul Schrader's book on transcendental film that... I'm glad somebody read that well. <laughs> Thank you. Absolutely, surely, you know? Yeah, well, I think this... I can't remember the exact thing you say, but it's kind of like, why do people make transcendental art? Why go that far? You know, it seems like sometimes people are just going out there all the way and it's like, to what end, like, how, why do we really need that in society? And it's kind of like, we don't need it. But then of course, there's something that we must need it because it, the arts continue to bubble up everywhere. And same with this kind of like a certain devotional, you know, practice or religion. And I think we're in the West, maybe used to thinking of the arts and religion more in uh, opposition as opposed to being kind of flowering from the same the seed? Oh, yeah. Beginning with Romanticism, uh, the end of the uh, 18th century, once it was free of the churches and other kinds of powerful institutions, art was poorer, but it was also freer to explore what is called the religion of the poets. So, yeah, anybody who loves music, I mean, the most obvious example is why does the most powerful music for us bring us to tears? It's like music isn't something that we do, it's something that happens to us. It becomes a certain kind of experience. Now, needless to say, this is true of very little of the totality of, of musical experience. And most of it has been commercialized and turned into a kind of dopamine pleasure pill. But um, there's music that I think even before I was a Buddhist, I thought it was sacred, especially Gustav Mahler's Kindertone Leader. I sit down and listen to that music. I actually, I very rarely listen to it because I only want to listen to it in really special occasions, and there's no occasion special enough. But it's really sort of like high priest art. In my own work, and even in these essays, I try to arrive at moments, especially in the last third of the book, which is called Joy. I try to recreate that feeling that we have in very specific spots. I try to sort of wake everybody up to a sort of spiritual value that has always been there. One of the things that you're also charting, and I think this is a larger 
cultural struggle that we have in the West, but particularly in the United States, which I'll just break down in terms of the philosophy department problem that you tease out, which is the rise and kind of now domination of positivist or analytic philosophy against the decline of a kind of German idealism, you know, the idealist philosophy and metaphysics. And so I was wondering if you could sketch out just for our listeners the difference between those two traditions and then kind of how an embrace of the type of Buddhism, the joy that you're talking about, the spiritualism may help restore idealism and metaphysics to the Western cultural traditions from which they sprang. One of the things I I would uh, remind everybody of is the fact that the transcendental or the metaphysical, if you prefer, is ordinary. You couldn't get through the day without it. I mean, Buddhism, especially Zen, often talks about how ordinary enlightenment is, that you you can get it through looking at a flower or whatever. But what I say is that, you know, in every, any given day, love and uh, beauty are things that we wouldn't dream of parting with. The feelings of love that we have for whatever, our family or our pets. God knows I love my parrots, but uh, we don't know what those things are. We have no idea what love is. We don't have any idea what beauty is, but we feel that the concepts, that the experience is critical, is central to what it means to be human. And, you know, compounding this, of course, is that we have no idea what consciousness is. We have no idea what mind is. There is no science of mind. There is a science of the brain, and that has had so, you know, considerable successes in, you know, helping people. That's fine. But we don't have any idea what consciousness or the mind is. Buddhism is very dependent upon that little formula that one of my teachers uses, using the mind to know the mind, to go beyond the mind. I was really interested in your argument against someone like Stephen Bachelor and his kind of making these tenets of, you know, he's someone who's a secularist, new atheist, and he believes in Buddhism without beliefs. But then at the same time, you were saying that lots of his ideas about, you know, what human human beings want to do and who we are and how we want to be good to each other and prosper are actually based on metaphysical principles. That there's no way for him to know those things, you know, outright. And someone who's using metaphysics for his argument without realizing he's relying on metaphysics is like the most dangerous kind of thinker. So I'd love to hear you talk more about that. His idea of what Buddhism should be doing is aiding in what he calls human flourishing. What exactly he means by human flourishing, it's not clear at all what he means by human flourishing. But the question I ask in the book is, how is the idea of flourishing not metaphysical? I mean, give me a definition then, you know? Does it mean flourishing in the sense of being successful or wealthy or, you know, tell me what it means? But he doesn't. So flourishing becomes his substitute dharmakaya. It becomes his substitute Buddha nature. It's all very pragmatic, of course, he thinks. But the fact of the matter is, is it's a mystified term. Maybe you could also talk about, I was curious for him, since I'm not, you know, super familiar, the Four Noble Truths, I know, but... So he puts the four tasks ahead of the four noble truths to somehow be the fundamental tenets of Buddhism. He says that this came down earlier than the four noble truths. What are the four tasks and why? how does that shape the understanding of Buddhism to think that that would be the principal document? You got me. <laughs> He'll have to ask Stephen Bachelor that question. But uh, first I would point out, can you imagine the hubris of someone after 2,500 years of people studying Buddhism and starting with the Four Noble Truths, that someone comes along and sort of says, you can forget all that and we're supposed to believe? But why would one want to forget that? What is the problem with the Four Noble Truths? Why would he want to subvert that? It doesn't make any sense to me. To be honest, I probably threw the book across the room at that point. And uh, <laughs> when he said, let's I mean, it sounds so American bourgeois pragmatic, right? That there are tasks we have to accomplish in order to flourish. You know, that sounds something like your grandmother might have told you, but I don't have any idea what he means by it. None. Can you talk a little bit, related but kind of shifting gears, 
how art and art practice kind of helps us to connect with, let's start with your terms. How is that a gate, a Dharma gate to either a more, see, and all the terms that I'm going to come up with are the wrong ones, right? So a more authentic engagement with Buddhism, or let's say meeting Buddhism on Buddhism's terms. Like why is art an important Dharma gate for that? Well, again, my feeling is that uh, since the Romantics, late 18th century, beginning with Blake, or even with the Rousseau in philosophy, the, the arts embarked upon a, an autonomous spiritual path. In other words, they, they had been so much under the burden of uh, dogma until really very recently, and of church institutions, and you know, you couldn't... Uh, talk smack about it. That's <laughs> word that comes to me. Let's talk smack about the church without risking your professional life and maybe your life life, right? Well, when those institutions, the nobility and the and the clerisy became less powerful, people started to see a way to freedom. I do think that that's the right word too. I mean, autonomy at least. And one of the things that they started doing was creating their own notion of spirit. Blake says that explicitly. A man must create his own religion or be enslaved by another. That's what he said. And I think that in the poets and philosophers of the Romantic era, which continues to this day, I mean, I think that the counterculture was an expression of the Romantic tradition, talking about the 60s counterculture. But that whole tradition is countercultural. They're trying to create, you know, think about Wordsworth and Coleridge, Keats, all those guys were trying to, Shelley in particular, were trying to create a counter-reality. They dropped out of all the class roles that were appropriate for them in early 19th century England. They dropped out of those roles. They refused them. And they were quite explicit about it. You know, Wordsworth said that he didn't want to be confined to a, a meager clerisy, the job which many third sons or something in England took to. You know, they, if they couldn't be, if they couldn't run the estate and they couldn't be in the military, then they got thrown into the church, even if they weren't particularly religious. That's what ha exactly what happened to Coleridge, and he was only saved by somebody who started paying his bills for him. And then he said, oh, great, I can get out of this damn church. But he was a very spiritual man, nonetheless. Coleridge was totally spiritual. So, you know, they were in the long process of inventing their own spirituality. And that process continues to this day. I mean, as recently as, you know, the jazz of the 1960s, Ornette Coleman is a deeply religious man. John Coltrane, same thing. Alice Coltrane, absolutely. Pharaoh Sanders, all those people, deeply religious. Sufjan Stevens in the pop world is uh, is a deeply spiritual person. And as far as, I don't think that, you know, we have to make up a sort of new categories for all these people. They're part of a lineage. They're part of a lineage that goes back to the early 19th century and the, and the Romantics. And I said, God bless it. Thank you. And he saved my life because I've actually been reading Thomas Merton a lot, his uh, Seven Story Mountain. And one of the things he points out in there was, he said, the first time I felt attracted to the idea of joining a monastery and getting out of society was when I declared myself an English major in college. And I said, you know, that's exactly what I did. I said, I don't care if I have money. I don't care if I have a job. I'm just going to pursue this because it's what seems right to me. Can't help anybody who tries to do that these days with student debt. But, and then Merton says, as an English major, a student of the arts, he found spirituality. He was able to find a path of spirit that took him even further down a certain road that eventually led to his uh, being a Trappist monk. You know, that same path is, that I followed in my life didn't lead me to be a Trappist monk by any means, but it did lead me to Buddhism. And I was so grateful when I finally ran into it and started to understand what it was. So I'm just wondering along these lines, I'm thinking as you're talking about how enrollments in colleges for arts programs or traditional humanities disciplines, they're cratering, right? At the same time that we see STEM dominating everything. And I think there's there's a correlation between the conversations that we're having. So I'm wondering if, what would be a thing that you would recommend to people who I'm sure are listening to this and being like, oh yeah, you know, I've done mindfulness meditation. I did find it useful. Again, I know we're trying to get away from useful, but 
what would be a way that you would kind of guide them or compassionately push them towards a deeper engagement with the spiritual wealth or experience that is right there below the surface? I don't have a good answer for that, but I can't, I do have a story. This is in the sutras somewhere, I think. Once upon a time, the Buddha was invited to give a lecture at a temple, some little town, and he went to the lecture and he stood in front of the assembled audience and he didn't say anything. He just held up a flower. You know, he just stood there for half an hour, an hour, whatever, and held this flower. And everybody was saying, why isn't the Buddha saying anything? There was one person in the audience. There was one person in the audience who responded. And uh, it is sort of like one of those moments in the Buddhist texts, early sutras, where the Buddha could look at a person and say, he knows. He gets it. Now, the good news in that story is that the spiritual path is right here. You don't have to look anywhere for it. You just have to be alert to, awake to its presence all around you. The bad news is that not many people do that. That's the bad news. And in fact, the Buddha didn't want to teach when he was first enlightened. You know, they said, well, Master, you have to teach now. And the Buddha says, no, nah, it's too hard. It's too hard. It's too complicated. I can't, I can't teach this. And they said, Master, there are some people here who don't have rocks in their eyes, but they only have a little dust. And if you could talk to those people, those few people, they would benefit greatly, and so would we all. So, you know, I say, you got to respond first. You know, you got to hear Mahler say and go, oh my God, <laughs> I'm going where, wherever that came from, I'm going there, which was basically my experience. Along those lines, you know, maybe you could say just a little bit more as someone who I think is clearly so, if not a Marxist, reading a lot of Marx, as you referenced so much in the book, I think of, again, I think I'm, that I understand things through an older paradigm, which is like religion is the opiate of the masses. Like religion is this thing to see beyond, to see clearly beyond. But I think you make the argument for Buddhism as something that is very much has this radical potential. And with that, of course, has a political potential. And the thing that would be lost if it was completely westernized is it would lose some of that potential for radical opposition. So maybe just right. remind me again about why believing in Buddhism is radical. I didn't say so in the book, but I'm a Marxist Buddhist artist. So the book is written from the perspective of a Marxist Buddhist artist. And the thing that makes Marx and Buddhism go together for me is the concept that Marx developed in his early essays called alienation. So for both Marx and the Buddha, people suffer because they're alienated from who they really are. And that's pretty literally what Marx was saying about, think about Engels' uh, book about the conditions of the working class in England, those descriptions of horror, of poverty, you know, ill health, dying on the street. Is that gone from our world? Yeah, no. So it's radical because it insists upon this idea of an essential human quality or a human nature that is completely opposite to the world that we see around us, the dominant world. It's completely outside of those structures of power through which we have no choice but to live, especially money. So, actually, I was just reading this in Merton last night, where he's talking about, you know, the problem. He was kind of an existential Christian towards the end of his life, but he was saying basically that the problem with uh, modern man is that they're, they're alienated from their true self. So, he talked about an outer self and an inner self, or a second self and an inner self. And the second self is completely beaten upon, powerless, corrupted, and unhappy, you know, and doing great damage to the world as we can see all around us now. But that inner self is uh, a place of a certain kind of knowing. Not of purity necessarily, but a, a place of deep knowing. That's what, you know, Marx was a deep knower. He wasn't much of an activist per se, you know. He didn't lead a mobs in a revolution. He was the student of philosophy. He was a very good student of philosophy. He wrote his dissertation about Epicurus for most of his life after school was spent in the British Library. 
So it's that Marx that I honor. The rest of it is just too tangled and problematic. You know, I mean, what happened to Marxism with the emergence of communism, et cetera? It's just a nightmare. But the Western Marxist tradition was basically about critique, ideology critique. Figures from the Frankfurt School, for example, like Theodore Adorno or Herbert Marcuse, I would be more familiar. They were not revolutionaries, but they were deep, knowing critics of capitalist ideology. At the same time, you know, this kind of like tradition that Buddhism has of peaceful protest or not. Buddhism is in, can be. I mean, certainly Thich Nhat Hanh's uh, version of Buddhism was deeply engaged. And um, Tanisara and Kitasaro at Sacred Mountain Sangha are doing a, a sort of echo dharma thing that's very powerful, hopeless, but very powerful. And so is David Loy with his book on echo dharma and his work at the Echo Dharma Center outside of Boulder, Colorado. So Buddhism is seeing, I think, more and more that it has to step up, but it's being made even more difficult than it would be under regular circumstances by the fact that they're being resisted and denied and belittled by people within their own community, namely the mindfulness-based stress reduction people, the Google people with their Search Inside Yourself Institute, and the secular Buddhists. You know, basically they're saying, don't do all that stuff. Thank you so much for coming here and reminding us that uh, there is a more radical tradition and that there's transcendence everywhere and uh, we need to uh, pay more attention to that. Yes, absolutely. You're welcome. Thank you very much for your work and uh, I hope you, you're well and happy. Take care of you as well. That was Curtis White. His latest book is Transcendent, Art and Dharma in a Time of Collapse. Thanks for listening to the LARP Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts to help us get the word out. And we'd love to hear from you. The producers at the LARP Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is Matea Baim. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogen Teasley Vlotten.